sharing our faith and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ with others is a desire of Zion Christian Fellowship. Our prayer is that this message will have a lasting impact on your life and draw you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This message is not copyrighted. You are free to make copies for friends and neighbors. We only ask that you copy it in its entirety without alterations or changes. Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Glad for each one that's here today. <clears throat> and we trust that God will continue to feed us with his word. Recently in my devotions, I read through Isaiah chapter 55, and I was blessed with a chapter in thinking of uh, Isaiah is a book of prophecy, and mostly a lot of the prophecy of Isaiah is negative things about Israel. But this is a very positive chapter, and I was blessed by that, and So I thought I would preach from Isaiah 55, kind of go through all the verses, and see what God has for us. As we read this chapter, we can read it as an invitation to salvation, coming to Jesus, coming to the waters and drinking and repenting, but We can also look at it as an experience that we need continually as Christians. We need to continually drink from that water and have an attitude of repentance toward God. Because this was actually written to the Jews who were already God's people, but an invitation to come closer to God and to learn to know Him in a new way. If we look at this chapter as a whole subject, just kind of an overview, it's clear that God has a great desire to bless his children and to bring him into a a close walk with him. The whole chapter kind of brings that out. But if we look at it section by section, there's a lot more details there, and maybe we lose a little bit of the continuity of it if we look at the individual sections. But that's what I'm planning to do this morning. Let's kind of look at, uh, oh, about four sections maybe. Start with, I'm going to read the first two verses. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. I was, my attention was brought to this first word. It's kind of a strange way to start a chapter. It says, ho. I don't know of any other chapter that starts with that word. What does that mean? Ho. I thought maybe that's the 
Hebrew word for hey. Hey, everyone, listen. That's kind of what it seems like he's doing. He's addressing a crowd and getting the people's attention. Say, hey, if you're thirsty, come over here. I've got something for you. But he's only calling a certain type of people, only the thirsty ones. If you're not thirsty, you might as well stay away because you're not going to drink anyway. You know, when we aren't thirsty, water doesn't hold any appeal to us. We can hold a cup of water here and maybe drink a swallow, but it's nothing really that great. But if we're thirsty, it just we have a drive to go there. So he's calling the people that really want to know God or really want to come and drink of this water. <clears throat> but ironically, that probably includes everyone because if we're not thirsty now, we soon will be. We have to keep on drinking. There's only two kinds of people in the world, those that are thirsty and those that will be. <clears throat> it works that way naturally, and it also works that way spiritually. Sometimes we drink of things other than God, and we aren't thirsty for a little bit, but eventually it comes back to us, and we are thirsty for God, whether we realize it or not. <clears throat> Psalm 63.1 says, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. He puts it very clearly, his desire as a thirst for God. Everything around here is not satisfying in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. The longer we are deprived of water, the more we desire it. You know, I've already talked about that. And I suppose most of us have experienced that, where we are just so thirsty, and just, oh, if I can just have a drink of water. <clears throat> and interestingly enough, the thirstier we get, the more only water will satisfy us. If we are really thirsty, we can have a cup of pop, of coffee, or a milkshake, what are we going to go for? We're going to go for the water. That's what we need. The other things are good at times, but the water is what we want when we're really thirsty. <clears throat> and God put that within us to be thirsty for him. When we come to the end of ourselves and we are desiring something, truth, something right, and we are thirsty for God. Maybe we could say God created an unrest within us until we, until we come to know God. Only God can truly satisfy that. I was thinking how that we compare to animals. If you look at cows that are on the pasture eating grass and then they lay down, they seem perfectly content. That's all they need is food and water and safety and they're perfectly content. They have no desire to go see the Niagara Falls. And when they're done there, they go see the Grand Canyon. They're just perfectly content where they are. But we aren't quite that way, are we? We are always wanting to discover other things, always wanting something. But that desire will never truly be fulfilled till we begin to discover God, 
to discover what he's like, his love and his kindness and mercy and his character. That's what he created that desire for, is to discover who God is. And I think that that is what will occupy us through eternity, is discovering who God is. But there are a lot of things around us that we can discover too. I mean, good things, and God wants us to discover things in this life. But we need to be careful that that doesn't take the edge off of our desire to discover God. There's just so many things around us. And I'm only going to mention one thing, and I'm not sure why I thought of this. (laughs) I thought about phones, the cell phones that we carry in our pockets. They can very easily distract us to not really seek after God like we should. They are such a great discovery tool. You know, we can sit there and discover so many things in such an easy way. Just pushing some buttons, we can discover this and discover that. We can discover what our friends are doing. We can discover the greatest video. We can discover the weather. Anything. We can just discover it so easy. It is an endless source, basically, of discovery, isn't it? I mean, there's no way you can find out everything that's on those things. I suppose we could say phones have probably come the closest to destroying thirst for God of anything that we have experienced. Maybe we should throw them away. Well, no, we're not going to do that because I can handle it anyway, you know, but... Um, and I had to think of people are always looking on their phones. If you stop at a stoplight and look around, how many people have that 10 seconds that they have to be looking at their phones? Why is that? Never have any time to meditate and think about God and let him speak to us. Just takes all our time. What would have happened if... David would have had a phone when he was watching the sheep. What would have happened? He wouldn't have had time to meditate. We wouldn't have the Psalms. You think he would have been able to fight Goliath? Wow, that's pretty... That's a different... uh, He had a completely different experience because he didn't have a cell phone. Because he had time to meditate, think about God. Let's be careful. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's a promise that God has given us. Next, in that uh, verse, first verse, says, Come to the waters. There's an invitation to come. Come to the water and drink. If we look at that word come, what does that mean? That means to move, doesn't it? Leave where we are and go to another place. That sounds fairly simple, but it takes effort. If we are invited to someone else's house for a meal, it means leaving our house, taking the effort and going to someone else's house. And generally we say, sure, I'll come, because the benefits of going to someone else's house are greater than staying at home 
and the effort to get there. So we say, yeah, that's a good trade. Well, he's inviting us to come to the water, leave what we have been doing and come to the water. The effort is worth it. The water is there, but it's not going to come to us. We need to go to the water. Now, if it was up to us, we'd probably put a hose on the supply and take a hose to the people and, you know, here's the water. You want to drink? But God wants us to put forth the effort to sort out the people that want it and the ones that don't want it. Had a couple of verses here that Paul wrote to uh, show that he had a great, uh, great thought or it was well worth it for him to leave what he had and come to the water. In Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. So he left a lot, and he considered what he left as worthless, just worthless compared to what he was getting in Christ. And then I have also a few other verses that describe the value of this water. In John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. Water that completely satisfies. Water that produces everlasting life. There's some real value there. In Revelation 22.1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then in 22.17, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. So there again it talks about the water of life. It's the same water that Jesus was talking about. This is making me thirsty. talks about let him take the water of life freely. Take as much as we want. There's no end to that store. We can take as much as we want and it won't cost us anymore. Oftentimes if we go to a store, if we take five packs of something, it's going to cost us five times as much as if we take one. But this isn't that way. We can take it freely and it won't cost us anymore. In fact, it says we can buy it without money. Come ye, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Does that mean it doesn't cost anything? Well, it's too valuable to buy with money. Maybe we'll put it that way. 
Because there is a cost, but at the same time it's free. It's kind of strange. Luke 9, 23 and 24 says, And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. So that's the cost. It doesn't cost anything, but it costs everything. And then in verse 2, it talks about spending money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. <clears throat> so easy to get our priorities wrong. We focus on the things that we can see and hear, and forget the things that are unseen, but those are the things that are truly valuable. In Jeremiah 2.13 it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And also John 6.27 Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat that which endure, for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. It talks there about buying wine and milk. Yeah, there it is. I thought I had a note about that. Come to the waters which quench our thirst, Water refreshes and cleanses us. And then it talks about wine and milk. I think it gives a little different flavor, if you will. (laughs) Water refreshes and cleanses us. Wine is given to gladden the heart, if we want to put it that way. You know, it's maybe kind of, we don't drink wine because of what it does, but I believe that's what it's referring to here. Wine to gladden the heart and milk for nourishment. So we have a complete package here when we come to God. Everything we need is found in God. Rejoicing and nourishing and cleansing. Okay, uh, going on to verse 3. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. And that's a phrase that is given several times in the Bible. And I wasn't sure what, what that means. What are the sure mercies of David? But as I started looking into some cross-references and things, <clears throat> it seemed pretty clear what he's referring to. Um, starting off with 2 Samuel 7, 14. This was the prophet Nathan making a promise to David about David's offspring. 
He says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he committed iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. When Saul sinned, God took the kingdom away from him. None of his children or his descendants were on the throne. But with David, it was different. He promised that he would always have a son to sit on the throne. Even if his son disobeys, he will chasten him, but he won't take him out of the kingdom, or he won't uh, destroy David's lineage from being king. And we see that down through the ages that there was also always one of David's descendants upon the throne. God promised that he would have mercy upon him forever. And then also in Psalms 89, 20 to 36, it's kind of a long chapter, but I think a long passage. I have found David my servant with my holy oil have I anointed him with whom my hand shall be established. Mine arm also shall strengthen him, but my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law, and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod, and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. So in this passage, it kind of changes from talking about David to talking about Christ. It says... uh, Also, I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. And we know that Christ was listed, or Christ was God's firstborn son. So I think it's transitioning from David to Christ now, and that's how how, uh, the sure mercies of David will continue throughout eternity. I find that very um, interesting to think about what that, that phrase, when we know what that phrase means, the sure mercies of David, it transfers over to Christ. And in Christ, we will always have mercy from God. And then also it says, um, well, verse 4 and 5, I'm going to read that in Isaiah. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew thee not shall run unto thee. 
because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. So there's a promise that sometime the nations of the world will come into unto the Jews, come into God's kingdom, <clears throat> and David will be the ruler over that. In Ezekiel 37, 24, And David my servant shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments, and observe my statutes, and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Well, we know that David will not be a king physically himself anymore because he has died. But Christ will be king. And Christ is the son of David. And here again it says, My servant David shall be their prince forever. It's talking about Christ. And also in Micah 4.1, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills. And people shall flow into it, and many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Looking forward to that time, I don't know how it's all going to be fulfilled. That uh, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into God's kingdom. And then we go on to to verses 6 and just 6 for now. 6 and 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It infers here that the time will not always be that we can seek the Lord, that we can find him. Behooves us to be Mindful of the times we are living in. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's what it says in Second uh, Corinthians 6, 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And if we go to Hebrews, it talks a lot about today, if you will hear his voice. Today, do this. Otherwise, you're going to be hardening your heart. Right now is the time to listen to God. Waiting is hardening our hearts. If we're waiting on the Lord, it's hardening our hearts and pushing Him away. But if we repent, there is mercy and pardon. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and the Lord will have mercy and abundantly pardon him. And then we go on to verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's comparing God's thoughts as 
higher than the heavens over our thoughts. And how high are the heavens? If we, we don't really have a stopping place when you go up. All we know is when we fly in an airplane at 35,000 feet, you can't see much down on the earth. Can't see people walking. <clears throat> and that's just part of the way up to the sky. God's thoughts are even higher than that over our thoughts. So why would God even notice us? I mean, his thoughts are so far above our thoughts, it would seem like he wouldn't even notice us. But that's not God. It's important for us to remember that God's thoughts are right and good and normal. God's thoughts are the way they ought to be. It's our thoughts that are way below and out of line. It's not that we can meet somewhere halfway between, say God's thoughts should be a little bit lower so we can maybe reach them. God's thoughts are where they ought to be, and our thoughts are way out of line. It seems that there are maybe two main areas of error in men's thoughts in relation to himself and God. The first one is that as men, we are basically self-sufficient. We have figured out how to handle things in this life. We can take care of our own problems and needs. We're pretty smart, especially if we have a cell phone. We can figure everything out. Um, It's nice maybe to have God as an insurance policy and If we need help, we can ask him. But most of the time, we can take care of ourselves. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, For without me, 